Good morning. It's great to be able to worship the Lord corporately together as the body of Christ. We are so blessed. But we're going to jump right into the message this morning. So open your Bibles to John 5, verses 1 through 15. John 5, verses 1 through 15. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you. We praise you for this opportunity, Father, to to worship you corporately in truth, in grace. Father, we thank you that you've been so gracious, so patient with us as believers, yet still struggling with sin. Help us to be people who magnify Christ in our daily lives. Help us to look at you as the great healer because that's who you are. We thank you for today, Father. We ask that you be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. Our verses say this, John 5, verses 1 through 15. After, there, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsda which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered him, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus travels to Jerusalem. And where's the first place that he goes? Well, he goes to the pool, of course, right? Verse 2 tells us that this area was five colonnades or porches, which was a, a, a big covered area, a, a large covered area, and somewhere within this area was a pool. That sounds like a great place to go, right? Especially for us that live in Florida. We think of the sun blazing when we want to be refreshed, when we want to be relaxed. We head to the pool, right? But this isn't that type of pool. This isn't that type of pool that I'm talking about this morning. Jesus goes to the pool where masses of people are utterly desperate. It's a place where people are suffering. This pool is where people were considered misfits by their own people. This pool was surrounded by the forgotten people. 
This pool was surrounded by people who were considered a burden to their own society. This place, verse 3 tells us, was where a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed were at. Can we imagine such a place where numerous paralyzed and handicapped people gathered together? It was a place where many had lost all hope. It was a place where many were full of discouragement. It was a place where many were dealing with severe depression. And Jesus goes to these people first in Jerusalem. Jesus sees beyond the physical flaws. He sees beyond the broken physical body. Jesus sees beyond mere appearance. Jesus sees image bearers. Those that are created in the image of God. Amen? And what does he do first? What does he do? He does not preach a great sermon to the masses. He does not try to heal everyone, which by the way, he could have done. He could have said, be healed. And everyone in that place would have been well in that moment. But that's not why Jesus was there. That's not why he was there today. Jesus turns to one man amongst the crowd, amongst the masses. Christ gives one man, a paralyzed man, his full attention. Have you ever had that experience? When you're talking with someone that is totally focused in on you, there's crowds all around hustling and bustling, but that person is focused in on the conversation with you. They listen attentively. They aren't distracted. Their eyes don't wander. The body language tells you that they are fully engaged, focused on you. Well, this is this paralyzed man was experiencing with Christ. This sick man was probably considered an outcast, avoided probably by most people, maybe because of his appearance, or maybe it was because he needed 24 hours assistance. And if you were going to be close to this man, you are going to have to sacrifice, spend a lot of time serving him. He was dependent on other people. But Christ was different. Christ is different than most people. He only focused on this one paralyzed man. Which leads to point number one. Jesus cares for individuals. Point number one simply says that Jesus cares for individuals. We've already seen this as we've perused through the Gospel of John. We can remember back when Christ spent time with a proud Pharisee named Nicodemus. And then a few weeks after that, we recognize that Jesus ministered to an immoral Samaritan woman at the well. And today, he reveals himself and heals a paralyzed man. Christ is compassionate. He cares. He is in the details of our lives. Many of us know that Jesus cares for people in general. But I wonder how many of us really know He cares for us. That He cares for me personally. That He cares for you individually. It's one thing to know that Christ cares for others, but it's another thing altogether to know that He cares for you specifically. When we're suffering, when we are lonely, 
when we are going through pain, when we are depressed, when we are confused, when we are full of sorrow, Christ is there. He cares. He loves us. Hebrews tells us that Christ is a sympathizing high priest who knows all of our weaknesses and shortcomings. Christ understands what troubles you are going through right now. Christ knows what we are struggling with and what we have been struggling with in the last month. Christ knows what we've been dealing with in the last year. Christ knows. He cares. He loves us. I wonder if we know such a loving and caring Savior this morning. Some of us may know Him. Some of us may have walked with Christ for a long time. But along the way, we have forgotten how patient, how loving, how gentle Christ is with us. If we're facing trials and troubles as a child of God this morning, you can be confident. You can be sure that Christ is working. He has not abandoned you. He is involved. He is working. He's engaged. He's even involved in the mundane, boring moments of our lives. He's there with us. But let's go back to our passage, and we're in John 5, verses 5 through 6. And it says this. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus turns to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and the first question he asks him is, would you like to be healed? That may sound a little odd to many of us, right? Considering this man's been crippled for so long. But we have to remember this. Christ knows this man's heart. Christ knows what is going on in the inside of this man. Perhaps this man gave up on hope years ago, and maybe Christ asked a question to arouse hope once again in this man. We're not sure why, but verse 7 tells us what the man's sad response was. Verse 7 says this, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So the man says he has no one to help him into the pool. When he tries to get in, another person moves ahead of him. And at this point, you may be wondering, okay, this guy's paralyzed, and he's talking about a pool. What does being healed in a pool have to do with this paralyzed man, right? Well, let's look up back at verse 4. It says this, At certain times, an angel of the Lord would go down into the pool and stir up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Does everybody see that in their Bible? Uh-oh, it's not in there? Your ESV doesn't have this verse in it? You guys must need to take it back. If you got in the bookstore, go get your money back, right? No, 
Not really, right? Because in, in many translations, this verse is missing or it has brackets around it. I think that's the New American Standard. And if you have the King James, it's in there. But verse 4 was not found in our earliest and most reliable manuscripts. That's why it's not there in most translations. So what most or many scholars think happened was a scribe trying to be helpful, probably added some commentary notes on the side, which over time sort of seeped into the verses and just became part of the general text. And from my own studies, it does look like verse 4 probably shouldn't be a part of our Bibles. Now, regardless if it's there or not, it does not have any bearing on the Scriptures at all. It does not change anything. But it seems that the idea of an angel stirring the water was probably more of a religion, religious superstition than an actual truth that was held in this period. And this man, who was sick for 38 years, was putting his faith, putting his hope, probably in religion, religious superstition. If I could just get, be the first one to be in that pool when it is stirred by that angel, then I could be healed. Then my life would be different. I wonder if there are people today who believe, like this man, who put their faith in religious superstition instead of Christ. I think I'll just focus on the Christian superstition. I remember listening to a youth pastor some time ago talking to his youth group. And he said to them, never question or doubt your salvation. He told them, just remember back. Just remember back on that day when you gave your life to Christ. When they said a certain prayer or when they walked down an aisle. He said, that sealed the deal for all eternity for you. And I thought to myself, as he was speaking, where does the Bible say anything like that? Where does the Bible say to put our faith in a prayer or when we walk down an aisle? Church, this type of counsel gives false assurance. I mean, we're talking to teenagers, and this is what this guy was telling them. Scripture tells us to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. I'm not saying a person can lose his or her salvation, but what I'm saying is that our heart may not have been changed or transformed when we said a certain prayer or when we walked down an aisle. The question is, what did we do with Christ? Or how did our life change after we walked down an aisle? After we said a prayer? You know, it's important for us from time to time to ask ourselves heart-probing questions about our faith in Christ Jesus. For example, how vibrant is our relationship with Christ in the present? How passionate are we for Christ in the present? How are we growing in our relationship in our love for Christ in the present? Is Christ ruling our life? Or are we ruled by the things of this world in the present? That's the questions we should be asking ourselves to gauge our relationship with Christ. Well, let's continue on. And point number two says this. Christianity is centered on Christ. Point number two says that Christianity is centered 
on Christ. If we are a believer in Christ, then he should be at the center of our lives as well. A follower of Christ is living for Christ. That's not, that does not mean that we're perfect by any means. We struggle with sin, but it does mean that we're growing, that we're loving Christ more today than we did yesterday. But we see in our story that this man was so focused on mere fables and myths that he didn't realize that he was talking to God in the flesh. He was looking for hope, and hope was staring him right in the face, and his name was Jesus Christ. What about us this morning? What are we putting our hope in? Do we recognize that Christ is our only hope? Like the paralyzed man, we may be looking to others, other pseudo-gods for help, for our salvation. We may be looking to psychology because our marriage is in shambles. Or we may have turned to self-help books to find relief from our past. Or we may struggle with being a people pleaser, so we try to make everyone happy. We end up living or dying on what others think of us. But the reality of it is, our life can't be built on psychology, nor can it be built on the newest self-help book, nor can it be, our foundation can't be built on what people think of us. Our only hope, our only true answer, our only solid foundation is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Everything else is putting our hope in uncertain, weak, flawed, and yes, wrong foundations. At this point, some of you may be wondering why I went from Christ healing physically to Christ healing spiritually. Well, these verses is a picture of something that's far greater, much more spectacular than a physical healing going on in this story. But before we go there, help me finish this phrase. You ready? Here we go. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Very good. And I don't want anyone to be shocked or to, be, to, to think I'm being harsh about this statement as it is good for all of us to be clean. I hope everyone took showers this morning. But this is not a Bible verse. I'm sorry. Nor is it remotely true. Cleanliness has nothing to do with how godly you are. But in our society, we have these little sayings, these phrases that often are confused with actually being a Bible verse. Here we go. The second one. Another famous one. God helps those who help themselves. And on the surface, this looks pretty good, right? It's God and me working together. It's teamwork. We got some real camaraderie going here. 50% God's working and 50% I'm working. We just do it together. That is awesome, right? Sort of like our story this morning, right? Where Christ healed the man 50% of the way and then the man healed himself 50% of the way. Okay, let's read that again to see if that's what it says. When Jesus saw him lying there 
and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Christ heals the paralyzed man and he doesn't have anything to do with the healing. We realize if we read on, the guy didn't even know it was Jesus who healed him. He didn't meet Christ 50% of the way. The man had no, no way of helping himself. He was dependent. He was utterly helpless. He was at the mercy of Christ, which leads to point number three. Jesus helps the helpless. Point number three says that Jesus helps the helpless. Verse eight says, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus told this man to do the very thing he couldn't do, the impossible. The man was crippled for 38 years. His body was weak. He couldn't walk. He couldn't even stand probably on his own. And Christ told him, get up and walk. God teaches us that we can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. We are helpless. It's like telling a blind man to drive a car or telling a paralyzed person to run a marathon. It's impossible. And here John reminds us through a physical healing of how desperate the whole human race is without Christ. The diagnosis from God's Word tells us that all of us start out as enemies of God, dead in our sins, under the wrath of God, utterly helpless. This doctrine is a long-held doctrine by the church called total depravity, which means that before we are in Christ, every part of us was tainted with sin. There wasn't a part of us that was free of sin. Our body, our mind, our heart, our thoughts, our actions have all been tarnished and tainted and distorted by sin. But that does not mean, hear me please, that does not mean that unbelievers can't do good deeds or good works. I mean, there are many unbelievers who help the poor, who serve their fellow man. The reality of it is they just don't do it for God's glory. That's the kicker. They have other reasons and motives for why they help the person across the street or for feeding the homeless. Maybe they're doing it just because they want to be nice to this person. That's in need. Or maybe they're doing it because it makes them feel good. Those motives aren't for God's glory. So it makes them still sinful. You may be wondering, how can I be so bold and arrogant to assert that I know what happens in the heart of every unbeliever when someone does a good work? Well, I would say, I don't know, but the Bible tells me. Let's go to Romans 8. 5 through 8. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. 5 through 8. Here's some Bible. Some pages turning. That's awesome. It says this. 
For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans tells us that the natural man or the unbeliever does not have the capacity to please God because they are controlled by what is known as the sinful nature, their flesh. They're controlled by their sinful heart so they can't follow God. They're blind. They're helpless unless Christ intervenes on their behalf like He did with the paralyzed man. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, or to say it another way, happy are those who recognize they are spiritually helpless. Or to say it even clear, clear, happy are those who know they can't do it themselves and depend on Christ instead. Amen? Coming to Christ is a work of God, not a work of man. We can't add anything to the finished work of Christ on the cross, which that's exactly what Casey was preaching at the beginning of this. The only part we can take credit for is the sin that caused our Lord and Savior to be crucified, to die on that cross. That's the credit we get to take. I think in our days, we have a lot of false conversions because most people aren't taught how sinful they are when they come to Christ. Many altar calls seems to emphasize God's love for individuals, God's purpose for individuals, God's blessings on individuals. And then they say some ambiguous sentence about being a sinner. This is not the gospel. This is trying to sell Christ, sell the gospel, highlight what people want to hear, and ignore what might offend them. The center of the gospel is the fact that Christ died for wicked, hardened, depraved sinners, which we all were. I know I've said this on many occasions, but it's worth repeating. Unless we see the depths of our sinfulness, we won't be in awe of God's grace either. They work hand in hand. Even for those of us who are believers, we should continue to be in awe of God's grace because we still struggle with sin on a daily basis. When a believer loses sight of sin in their own life, they lose sight of the grace of God in their own life as well. When this happens, they become focused on how good they are instead of how good and great and mighty and big Christ is. Brothers and sisters, Christ sought us out. He rescued us from darkness, washed us clean with His blood. He gave us, deposited His Holy Spirit in us, and we will now spend eternity with Him forever. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Are we in awe of God's grace this morning? I wonder if we praise Him for such a magnificent gift, His sovereign grace. Are we living dependent on Christ this morning? Let's continue on in our last section here. Verses 
14 and 15. Let me get a drink, though, so I can try to finish this. It says this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So Jesus connects the spiritual reality to the physical healing. Jesus pours his grace on this man and reminds him to walk in holiness. I know the two sort of not very popular words in our day is sin and holiness, but holiness is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. Christ warns the man to live a life of holiness, a live a life to please God instead of himself, which leads to point number four. Followers of Christ grow in holiness. Followers of Christ grow in holiness. True believers in Christ will continue to grow in their faith. They will continue to mature in Christ. If Christ is our Lord and Savior, then our lives will reflect that Christ is actually our Lord and Savior. Right? But again, the only way we can live to actually walk in holiness, to please Him, is to be dependent on Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit again. Happy are those who know they are nothing, who know they are spiritually helpless, who depend on Christ for their strength. We don't graduate from being poor in spirit when we become a Christian. We have to stay a part of the vine like Jesus says. We have to stay spiritually dependent on Christ. We don't start with Christ and end with ourselves. We start with Christ and end with Christ. We recognize our strength. We recognize our giftings. We recognize our abilities. We recognize the, the reason why we can repent. The reason why we see our sin. The reason why we can worship Him and be so thankful for His grace is because the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to be able to see these things. We start our Christian life dependent on Christ and we end our Christian life dependent on Christ. Amen? Well, in conclusion, Christ is the great healer. The question is, is he your great healer? Have you turned to Christ in repentance and faith? As we think about the love and care that Christ displayed to this paralyzed man, I wonder if we see the same care and love in Christ working daily in our own lives. What about our dependence on Christ this morning? How happy are we to be fully and wholly dependent on Christ? To be fully aware that we are incapable of doing anything without Him. And finally, are we growing? Are we maturing in Christ? Is our love for Christ going deeper? Is, is our love for others going further? What would be some examples of how we are growing in our faith in Christ? Christ is the great healer. He is compassionate Lord and Savior. May we continue to share the love, the compassion, the hope we have in Christ to a world who is blind, a world that is blind and paralyzed by Satan and the flesh. Let's go to our Lord in prayer.
Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for your sovereign grace, your love. The, the blessing that you allow us to see who we really are. To see that we're not as good as we think we are. To recognize that we have to be fully dependent on you because of how bad we still are even as Christians. Help us to be believers who are in awe of your grace daily. Who aren't like the Pharisees and look at how great we are and, and, and look down at other people that we recognize we are just as wicked as everyone else. But it's your grace that makes all the difference, Father. And that your Holy Spirit is changing us into the likeness of your Son. And it's not because of how good we are, but it's because of how good you are. Help us to be a church that lives that way. To lives dependent on you. Who walks in holiness by the power of your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.